the pre-code films were made in a period when there was just desperation and panic. Are we going to be able to keep the studio open for another month? So the only solution for it was to make racy movies. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Floozies, con men, unfaithful wives, skirt-chasing husbands, gangsters and chiselers, and lecherous titans of industry, that's entertainment. At least it was during the pre-code era, and Mark A. Vieira has a gorgeous new book of words and pictures from that naughty time. We'll talk about it. So listen to this episode and then subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And be sure to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. Thanks. The myth was that old movies were pictures of a more innocent time. An innocence preserved by the Hayes Code, which kept the darker sides of human nature off the screen. Then we got to see a class of movies that had mostly been kept from us, until film programmers and TCM unlocked the gates. And we realized the movies had known sin all along. My father, a swell start you gave me. Ever since I was 14 months had been. Nothing but men, dirty, rotten men. And you're lower than any of them. We'll make those guys pay for their fun. Right through the checkbook. Underneath your... What do you know about me underneath? Huh? Uh, I mean... Uh... Oh, I know what you mean, yo, sugar. <laughs> Try again, with all our friends laughing at me. Laughing at you? Yes. Someplace among the people we know, there's a man. Maybe men, I don't know. But from now on, I'll wonder which one. And how many of them are laughing at me. Say, I know when to keep my mouth shut. I hope so. I merely said I came from the next plantation and the boat broke down. She'll believe that if you'll back me up. I don't want to crawl in and dirty up her goldfish bowl. Now listen, this woman's decent. You watch her language and stop running around here half naked. Rome will be destroyed when I die. Why not when I live and can see it? Burn, Rome! Burn! I should come up sometimes, see me. I'm home every evening. Yeah, but I'm busy every evening. Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? The phrase pre-code probably wasn't even invented until the late 80s. Now it conjures up a vivid world of cynicism and sexuality tied to the Great Depression. Mark A. Vieira wrote one of the key works on pre-code movies with 1999's Sin and Soft Focus. Now, 20 years later, he has a new book published by TCM and Running Press, Forbidden Hollywood, When Sin Ruled the Movies. 
It takes a fresh look at the era through films and documents newly available to researchers. But besides a deeply researched history, it's also a gorgeous picture book. Vieira, a photographer who shoots in a classic glamour style, scanned and retouched hundreds of vintage stills to offer one of the most beautiful books on classic Hollywood I've ever seen. I spoke with him in his Los Angeles studio recently by phone. As much as I enjoyed reading the book, I mean, really, first off, it's just a beautiful book to look at. I may be slightly prejudiced toward old movie stills, uh, but nevertheless, I mean, <laughs> truly a beautiful book. And I know you did a lot of work on the photos. So maybe let's start by talking about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, it's when we think about Hollywood, I mean, it's a, a visual medium. It's not radio. And so um, my challenge is when I'm writing about a particular uh, episode or incident or event in the book is to find an image that really, you know, conveys that as, as precisely as possible, but also powerfully. So what I do is look for a picture that it's, it's uh, in itself arresting, you know, the lighting composition, the people in the picture being looking at their best. Uh, so the question is where to find that picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've curated with the idea, like, oh, this, this would be great on a page across from some, you know, another certain photo. But in a lot of cases, you know, there, there wasn't the photo that I had, so I had to reach out to, uh, there's a, some collectors, like there's a man who has a wonderful website called Greenbrier Picture Show. Uh, he was the very first guest on Nitrateville Radio, John McElwee. Okay, John McElwee lent me a lot of photos for the book. And so did Darrell Rooney, my co-author on Harlow and Hollywood. And then uh, Turner Brand Central did supply a number of photos. You know, it goes like that. You just you try to find the, the, the one photo that really tells that story as best as possible because I just feel that people will carry those images with them. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we're talking about an era that's 85 years at the newest, and then we go back to the teens always with when you write books about Hollywood. So pictures of that vintage, pictures of that old have been in file cabinets, on walls, uh, in drawers, wherever. And, you know, it's paper. It's not uh, stainless steel. So it does get dinged and scratched and bumped and torn and bent and folded. And so it's that's the first thing you do is, is to... to fix those things with what's the Photoshop is the process I use, the, the program I use. Um, and then also to improve the contrast, it's a process that can take as little as 15 or 20 minutes on a photograph, or it can take six hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's that job. In addition, you know, the first is research, then you acquire the images, then, the, then you go into that, the, this, this is going to be a full page. It's got to be perfect. So there's there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, the picture from Freaks, for example, of uh, Olga Baklanova and Harry Earls uh, was really was a mess. It was really damaged, uh, and I had to just recreate the whole background on that one. But I just felt it was such an important image. It had to be on that page in that chapter. Uh, no other picture would do it better. Yeah. Uh, were a lot of them heavily photo, or not photoshopped? A lot of heavily uh, retouched back in the day, the old-fashioned way. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
with the exception of a few films in Universal when they really got cheap, <laughs> uh, which is between like 28 and 34, uh, still photo of every movie from every studio was retouched with pencil lead on the emulsion. And uh, they, you know, they had a retouching machine called Adam's Retoucher, and they'd set the thing on there, and the thing would vibrate. And this person would sit in a booth with a pencil, a very sharp pencil, and start at the forehead and work their way down to the neck and do, and do the arms and fingers too, um, elbows, whatever showed that had to be smoothed out totally um, to that you know alabaster look. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, pre-code is one of those things that I think we all sort of know it when we see it. But how would you define pre-code? It's a little bit of a negative image in that it's an era defined by what followed it, basically. Right. And also, unlike uh, film noir, which is the last book that I wrote, um, pre-code is fairly easy to recognize from at least one point of view is that it's there's a line of demarcation is a March 1930 to July 1934. Right. Let's say you well what Mark what about Little Women is that a pre-code movie? Well, it's it's from the era of the 1930 production code. So you can say it's from the pre-code era, but it's not you know quote unquote pre-code. So um, to answer your question further, um, let's say Search for Beauty. That's one of the last ones. Uh, you compare that to uh, let's say Madame Satan from 1930, one of the first ones. Um, you know, Madame Satan uh, has scanty costumes, has a uh, man and woman in bed, um, has adultery treated as a joke. Uh, so all those things are in violation of the code. Search for beauty, it's not about uh, a man trying to win his wife back. Uh, I'm sorry, a woman trying to win her husband back. Kay Johnson and Reginald Tenney. It's about, you know, people that are using sex as a business. Um, that's uh, Robert Armstrong and James Gleason, uh, you know, first of all with a magazine and then with this uh, resort. And it's, it's, you know, it's all about sex. It's not just a, about somebody trying to accomplish something. Because what Joseph Breen would always say to his people when he'd go through a script, once he was in charge, he'd, he said they'd have their, their meeting on, I think, Tuesday mornings. Uh, He'd say, what is this character's problem? And how can he solve his problem without violating the code? And our job is to help this filmmaker, this writer, this producer, this director, make their film you know, within the, the confines of the code, but in a creative way. People don't really know that about Joseph Breen, was that once he got in there, he was not a negative force. He was trying to help the people you know, make the make the film the best way they could creatively without uh, offending anybody, whether it be a foreign government or the American government or, you know, some uh, person uh, who felt their child shouldn't be going to the theater and be exposed to things that that they didn't want to see at that age. The pre-code films were made in a period when there was just desperation and panic. Are we going to be able to keep the studio open for another month. So what are we going to do? You know, Paramount was in very bad shape. Universal was closed for months at a time. Uh, all the studios were in receivership in 33. 
except for MGM and, and uh, Fox Films. So it, it was a really serious situation. Um, but so the only solution for it was to make racy movies. Which kind of worked in the short term and ultimately didn't work in the long term. Well, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's, a, it's a case-by-case situation. For example, um, I had a film series called Made Prince Universal. These are called retired TV prints. In other words, they were on, used in local stations from, let's say, 58 up until the late 80s, early 90s. And then they came back to the studio and were in a, uh, a vault. So I got to see movies that you couldn't see. It's just, I mean, they're not uh, condemned or lost or banned or the rights weren't tied up. Just that there was no reason to show them. So I saw B-movies made from July 34 on. And I had never seen these before. And let me tell you, <laughs> the films that were most affected by the code weren't the big productions, you know, um, Lives of Bengal Lancer or, or um, you know, some big production at Paramount. It was the B pictures. They just are so flat and so dull without that kind of spicy attitude that you would see in a film from 33, 34. Uh, they just are very dull. They're very, just kind of, they they seem to put silliness in place of sexiness, and it really doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> what what I like about the prequel films is is they're saucy and and they, you know, they're fairly frank about certain kinds of things that you wouldn't hear discussed. You know, constipation, for example. It's uh, <laughs> there's one mention of a baby having constipation in, in the movie called A Free Soul until the sixties. You know, just wasn't done. So. um the, and you see the negative aspect of the code. Yeah, they can clamp down, but don't forget, <laughs> the studios were paying the MPPDA to have this agency, the Production Code Administration, keep them in line so they wouldn't you know, have trouble with local censors ruining prints or federal government taking over the entire industry. And that could have happened. I mean, look what happened to other countries, uh, Germany, Italy. I mean... Uh, there was that really, you know, there was a, a movement in the 20s in the United States, with the Brookhart Bill in particular, to <laughs> to nationalize the film industry. So you know, you wouldn't have had classics. You would you had that you would have had this you know propaganda machine. That that you know, the, yeah, it's, sure, it's it's no fun to have your knuckles wrapped, but you know, you don't want to burn your hands either. Yeah, I mean, they basically made their own censor to avoid less congenial censors in a bunch of different jurisdictions. And it, and it really happened. It was, it was almost imminent in 28. Uh, the Brookhart bill was really gaining momentum. All right. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned 1930 is when it begins. And you say in the book explicitly that silent films are not pre-code films, period. Um, although I've certainly seen many silence that are sort of leaning in that direction. I think of things like our dancing daughters and stuff like that. So why do you, why do you define it? What, what happened in 1930 that defines the beginning of the pre-code era? Well, all of a sudden there's a specific thou shalt not. I mean, there's, there are, there are the commandments, uh, in the early days, you just, you know, they would try something and the only way they knew that they couldn't get away with it was be, <laughs> They get a print back from Skokie, Illinois, or Wabika, Wisconsin, that's cut to shreds, and then they've got to throw it away, and make a new print, which is, which, you know, it's a lot of money. Uh, the, the time to do it, the lab assistance, the chemicals, and, and not to mention the raw stock. 
So that's how they knew they were doing naughty things. And, you know, there was, of course, the the don'ts and be careful in 27, but they were not enforced. So really, you can't say somebody's bad if there's no law he's breaking. So that's that's the reason. I mean, I'm not saying there were not salacious elements. Of course there were. If, If there hadn't been, there wouldn't have been a 1930 code. But if you compare the attitude of a film made in 33 to the attitude of a film made in, in 1926, it's an entirely different thing. They, they know that they're bucking something. They know that they're, they're flouting something. Uh, in 26, they just knew, well, let's see what this story we can tell us with this thing. Let's put this in and see what, what happens. And, you know, they found out fairly quickly. There were letters to photoplay and letters from exhibitors and, and you know, theaters, owners writing to, to the studios saying, you know, what are you doing? I, people are not liking this, but, you know, there was no code. The, the don'ts and be carefuls were, were not generally publicized or known, whereas the production code, you know, was was a, an important thing yeah. culturally. Well, it also seems to me that, I mean, just being in sound at that point and with the depression happening, I mean, films are just, they just come off rougher in a way, you know, more more gritty than the films even, you know, a few years before, even comparing things where there's the silent movie and the sound sequel, like Our Dancing Daughters or What Price Glory. The sound sequel has just a a rougher edge to it. That's true. Um, One thing was dialogue. You could do much more because, you you know, an intertitle, you could say swear words and stuff. I mean, but they'd cut them out. But if you have a, a sound on disc, you can't cut it, and you, there's more time to talk. You can't, you know, intertitles just are very brief, like subtitles, in a way. Um, but, yeah, you're right. There's, it's, uh, also, another thing that you touched on, too, is that by 1932, people were just upset and angry and frustrated and bewildered, and there was this, you know, national anger that came through in many, many, many scripts of every studio, not just people say, oh, Warner Brothers was so gritty and the other studios weren't. That's really not true. I mean, MGM, the the biggest profitable, you know, the, the Tiffany, the, the Rolls Royce of studios made as many movies about people suffering from the depression as Warner Brothers did, especially in 32 and 33, Midnight Mary, uh, Night Court, um, Faithless. They all have these, you know, very uh, brutal urban stories, you know, uh, and anti-union violence or union violence or you know whatever it is that they have at least these elements in them that that was Warner Brothers supposed to was the only one doing but so much of film history is written in these really gross generalities and a lot of it came from the 50s and 60s when you couldn't see the films yeah <laughs> once the films hit TV and once they hit the universities in the 70s it was a whole different story you know you're, you're quoting you're making frame enlargements like I used to do in college. You, you know, to show an actual scene that somebody is saying, oh, this is so-and-so happened. No, it didn't. This is what happened. You know, here's the, here's the dialogue recorded off the TV set. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here's, a pic- and here's a picture of that scene. So, you know, film history has really improved since the 70s. And then since the 80s, when the Production Code Administration files are available, people understood exactly what was going on, what, why, they're, why you see a movie on TV and it, and and then you saw it 30 years ago in the theater, and you, well, what happened to that scene? I remember, you know, yeah, <laughs> it 
it was chopped out after the after the code came in, and they wanted to reissue it. And Breen says, "Oh no, you got to cut that scene out." Well, yeah, that's. I thought that was a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about. But just um, part of what brought it to a head was the fact that, like you say, you can't edit a Vitaphone film. If you cut the the footage, you still haven't cut the soundtrack. So. Um, I think in some ways by making the the sensor boards incapable of doing what they were used to doing, it did sort of force other forms of action. That's correct. Yeah. And of course, as we, as you know, um, the Vitaphone, the disc thing didn't last all that long. I mean, maybe what, two and a half, three years. Right. And until the, you know, the sound on film technology took over, but, uh, you know, it it did force the issue. There's no question, because all the studios were using the Vitaphone. Well, and the other thing is, at that point, when it's sound on film, if you make the cut, it's much more apparent because you hear as well as see the splice. So, as you say, audiences were aware that they were getting robbed of something. You know, that Philadelphia wasn't seeing something you could see somewhere else, and things like that. My my editor, my is in Philadelphia, and so is. And she she got a you know kick out of this. She's why didn't know the the city was so straight laced at that time. But yeah, Boston and Philadelphia were the ones known for really ripping up uh, prints. You know, really scissoring the prints. Yeah. Well, if they knew what they liked in Philadelphia, they wouldn't live in Philadelphia. So. <laughs> yeah. Now, and the other thing that happens at that at this time that's that I thought was really interesting is is the rise of. Catholic influence on the movies and you you talk about that that's it's partly just because it was an organized religion as opposed to many different decentralized Protestant denominations but that that really be kind of comes the uh, the story of this as you sum it up at the end a Catholic minority had wrested control of a Protestant market from a Jewish controlled industry and I guess the result of that is all those Bing Crosby priest movies in the 40s so well, I hadn't had the concentration of the, of their Catholic people in the cities where the big theaters were. They couldn't have done it. They couldn't. The boycott wouldn't have worked. But the boycott worked because they told them from the pulpit, you cannot attend movies. And they, oh, you mean bad movies? No, no, any movies this week under pain of mortal sin. In other words, if you died, right. you would go straight to hell. You know, no, no $200, no pass go. So, uh... So they just stayed away, and I guess I explained, I hope I explained in the book, that the, the theaters were so large that if you, you put a film in the theaters for a week, if those theaters are filled at least part of the week, a theater of 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 seats, you get back your negative costs within a week. And it doesn't matter if people see it in the hinterlands or overseas, you've, your film has broken even. So it's all gravy after that. But in those theaters, if you don't do well, uh, like, for example, um, Bitter Tea of General Yen opened uh, Radio City Music Hall. And that was a disaster because they had this cavernous theater and no one was in it seeing this film because they heard it was about uh, a white woman and a, and a Chinese man, you know, and they just didn't want to see it. Um, so that was a case where they should not have opened it in that theater. They, you know, Columbia should open a film in that theater. 
because it was embarrassing. But those big theaters in those cities that were heavily, heavily Catholic, you know, Chicago, um, they they wielded power over the box office. And that wouldn't work uh, in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York. But it worked in the Midwest. And, that, you know, they, they planned it. They were very shrewd. And Breen was in on it. You know, he was he was a double agent. He was there at the in the office. Well, you know, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen to you know to the producers. And then he goes back to to the bishops and says, "Okay, this is what we got to do. We got to you've got to do it here. We can't do it in New York or you know Florida or someplace. We got to do it here because this is where they're making their money. This is where their theater holdings are." So it was a very shrewdly planned campaign, and it, you know, obviously it worked. Yeah, and what people call the Hayes office really after a certain point was the Breen office. He was the arbiter of the code for, you know, 20 years, basically. That's true, yeah. He retired in 54. Um, and uh, Hayes, at that point and thereafter, had less and less to do because there was there were no crises. Um, but um, Hayes kept getting yanked into the story in especially in 32 with Scarface and then 33 just with everything, uh, got yanked in it because there would be one crisis after another and they'd have to turn to him. And, you know, Jason Joy was able to handle it, but the Wingate just came in, you know, after being so so mean and, and restrictive in New York's state uh, censor board, uh, the one that they really hated to deal with. So they, he comes in and he finds out, huh, it's not as easy as he thought it was. In fact, he... He he couldn't adapt at all. He was hopeless. He had there was no middle ground with him. Either he just pushed something through, like the the sign of the cross, or she done him wrong, or he would just clamp down and you can't do this, you can't do this. He didn't. He had no story sense whatsoever. He was unlike Jason Joy or Josephine. He wasn't able to work with the filmmakers and find ways to tell the story without violating the code. He just and he was also not a uh, a personable man. Uh, Breen was a lot of fun in in many ways. Uh, you know, a storyteller. You know, he had this this flair. Jason Joy was was kind of soft spoken, but but wry, droll. But this Wingate was just hopeless. He just couldn't couldn't function. So this was another reason why this whole crisis happened. They put exactly the wrong man in there at exactly the wrong time <laughs> when, when the depression was at its very very worst. Yeah, it took them a while to finally realize that Breen, who was kind of scheming his way to the top, he was really the answer to it. And, you know, it paid off at the box office. He helped guide them toward making movies that made money, and they were they were much better off after the pre-code era. That's the thing that's a little hard to accept, is that really the cleaning up the pictures was kind of a good move. Well, yeah, because by 36, they were rolling in clover. I mean, uh, look at the films of late 35... Um, Mutiny on the Bounty, David Copperfield, Les Miserables. There's there's a whole bunch of movies based on the classics. You know, yeah, for one thing, there. Tale of Two Cities around that time. Yeah. Oh, it's, oh, that was a monster hit. Uh, yeah, and so they're all based on classics, which meant no, no um, stage play to buy or expensive novel to buy. Uh, you know, they had, and the writers are under contract, so there's no problem there. And there was a, you know, a name value, title value, but the, they were able to, to tell these stories without a problem. Um, 
without having to, to fight every step of the way. You know, Anna Karenina was a one case where they really did have to, to clamp down. And, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds about that. I, yes, yeah, they're, they're, it's not a passionate the way uh, Vivian Lee was passionate in the 1948 version. But, uh, you know, Garbo makes up for presence and power, what, what, what the film wouldn't, uh, would not allow her to do in passion, as she had done in her late silent films and early talkies. She was the, the sexiest star of all, you know, from the late silence to about, uh, to Queen Christina. And then, you know, they had to change her persona as they changed the persona of Jean Harlow, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford. They all had to, to come up with a new persona. And Mae West was the one who really, uh, you know, she's, she's persisted, but I wouldn't say she thrived. Uh, I mean, if she had been, allowed to make films as she made her first two, whew, they would have been, you know, the, I, I've seen the script for Bell of the 90s, which was originally called It Ain't No Sin. And my <laughs> goodness, it's, I mean, it's it's condoning murder. She's she's just totally wanton. Um, and that doesn't even include the dialogue. Just the, the plot itself is outrageous, given, you know, the production code. But... Um, so she, you know, she went back to the stage and did very well. She never, she never lost. And then when movie, when the code, <laughs> as soon as the code was dismantled and replaced by the rating system, she comes back in Myra Breckenridge and right, yeah. as raunchy as can be. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's talk about uh, the stars who were really kind of created in the uh, the pre-code era. I mean, I think there most people would say there's a certain distinctive set of stars that you really associate with that and some who transcended it. I mean, don't necessarily think of Clark Gable as one of them, although he definitely, you know, brought a new kind of rougher masculine persona to that time. But I particularly think of like, well, like the first one is Norma Shearer. She was kind of pushing the boundaries early on in the pre-code era. That's very true. Um, because after all, uh, she wanted to change her image. She, you know, she, she thought she could get an Oscar um, before they even were called the Oscars. And she, uh, her husband had co-written the code. He's the most powerful producer in Hollywood. He was in a category of his own, almost revered for his, his brilliance and his sense of, of showmanship and, and business. If they couldn't do it, who could? So they pushed it and they got away with it. Um, I don't think that the divorcee was, was uh, as controversial it, it was the testing ground, but it wasn't as controversial as A Free Soul or Strangers May Kiss. And then Strange Interlude, remember the, the one, one exhibitor writes a letter to the magazine and said, this picture is full of sexes of dogs of fleas. <laughs> but that made, you know, it made a lot of money. Uh, people wanted to see these stars and they wanted to, and women wanted to see these people, women, actresses, you know, women stars, actresses, uh, doing things that were kind of wish fulfillment, uh, you know, in the working world. I mean, for example, in Strangers May Kiss and The Divorcee, Norma Shearer is a working woman. You know, she's not a, a stay-at-home. Uh, and in A Free Soul, she's a daughter of an attorney who's been raised, with, you know, by a single parent and is, you know, lives by her own code. So it's, um, and you see Norma Shear does address these feminist issues in every interview. Uh, 
you know, I'm sh- women don't want to see me doing dull things. They want to see me being adventurous. Um, they want to see me testing the waters for them. And so, so that, you know, it wasn't like here, do this movie and okay, sure. I'll do it. No, she, <laughs> she was looking for properties herself all the time. And many of these stars, Dietrich, uh, suggested properties, even wrote blonde Venus, wrote the original treatment. Um, Crawford was always shopping, going to see plays. Uh, they, you know, they were, there was a Biltmore Theater here in Los Angeles at that time in the Biltmore Hotel. And you had major Broadway shows and stars coming here to, to you know, on tour. So you could, people who were working here, you know, six days a week, sometimes seven, couldn't go to New York, but they could see a play here. And uh-huh, if Alfred Lunt, Lynn Fontaine can do that, well, let's try that as a, as a movie. Or here's Catherine Cornell. Let's try that as a movie. So that was an important aspect. Uh, stars did go to see plays, and they would tell the producers, "I want to do this role." You know, sometimes they got them, sometimes they didn't. But you know, uh, it was an, you know a way of, of finding new ways to to uh, to express a certain talent. Well, and I think there's something about those those sheer films in like 29 to 31 or so. I mean. We think of pre-code as having a sort of humorous naughtiness to it a long time, or sometimes just outright sleaze, like in Babyface. But with with her, it's just more being a modern woman. I mean, she she uh, argues with Chester Morris and the divorcee over the double standard that you know he can have flings, but if she does it, it's a horrible betrayal. Um, and you know, free soul. I mean, the whole point of that is that she's, she is her own woman. She's a modern woman. She has her own, uh, viewpoint and it's not meant to be, you know, kind of sniggeringly dirty. It's just modernity. Right. And now you're, you're very correct in that there are plenty of movies. There was one just shown at the Turner classic movie, classic film festival called night world. And in my, as Joseph Breen would say, in my considered judgment, they just tack those elements onto to a, a fairly ordinary story to give it, you know, things that they could show in still photos or in the poster or in previews. Oh, look what you're going to see. Because those things would, those little scenes would be in previews. You won't see anything like this until you've seen. And when you go see the movie, and that's a couple of scenes, part of a scene, and the rest of the thing is, is, is ho-hum. So, but back to what you said about Free Soul, yeah, the whole story is about, you know, what can this modern woman do as the depression is forcing her? What can she do because she has to vote now? What can she do because the 20s redefine women? Uh, what can she do now that, that the, the world has changed again? And that's, that's what those are about. But there were movies, I'll tell you, lots of them, uh, that just were dirty for dirty's sake. And they especially came from Fox Film. Yeah, that company was was very strange uh, because they had thrown William Fox out, and they were had this huge facilities, two huge facilities to support, and they had you know, money coming in from the biggest theater chain of all, and uh, they had no story department management the way there was at Paramount uh, or MGM. It, it's just very very poor. Uh, choice of scripts, first drafts being filmed, um, you know, and then they have to do retakes because the things will turn out so bad. 
And it was just so you see anything from Fox film, you know, Call Her Savage is the, the most well-known example of a film that, what on earth is this about? <laughs> and why is, it, why is it so raunchy and racy? Breaking every pr- production code, you know, one movie breaks almost every production code law or rule. But um, you, it's true that Paramount did, you know, that the censor was there and he heard them saying, we got to just spice up these scripts because we're in such trouble and we got to get people to come and see these movies. And, and you look at a, a, the Warner Brothers movies that are on DVD, have the trailers with them, and you can see that they really are pushing those racy elements in the trailers. And the still photos push it too, and the posters and the lobby cards, you know, so, um, yeah, there's films that, that would, would have a legitimate use of adult elements, you know, farewell to arms, but there are films that just were trashy. <laughs> yeah. The one I'm, I'm introducing tonight is called Only Yesterday. It's a film from Universal from 33 by a very respected director, John Stahl, who was a veteran at that point already. And, um, and it made a star of Margaret Sullivan, they didn't push it for the sensational elements, but they certainly are there. Um, you know, she's an, a single mother, unwed mother. Um, then the man seduces her again without realizing who she was. Um, it's, it's, and it's very, it handles it very tastefully since with great sincerity and it's very touching, but it's really an adult story. But, you know, they, um, I've looked at the advertising for it this week, and it's all about Margaret Sullivan, our new star, in a story about the area we have lived through. Because it starts with the with the stock market crash. Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh my God, it's so well done, really well done. It just you know, when the real thing happened again in 2007, I was ready for it because I had seen this movie. <laughs> it's a fine piece of, of filmmaking. Unfortunately, the the rights are tied up, so it can't come out on. Uh, oh. Blu-ray or DVD or be on TCM. That's that's frustrating, but it can be shown in, in theaters, uh, in repertory theaters, as is being shown tonight at uh, at UCLA. Well, you know, you bring up a point about it just being an adult subject. That uh, you know, once once the code comes in, there's concern that it's not just that we're kind of cleaning up the smutty bits, but that we're cutting off large sections of human experience from being in the movies. There's a quote that you quote from someone writing in The Nation. Thus far, the censors have spent all their time protecting children against adult movies. They might better protect adults against childlike movies. Well, yeah, I, I, and as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the B-movies from Paramount and 20th are just hard to take They're, because it's not just that they don't have anything salacious in them. They don't have a realistic view of the world. Yeah. They're silly. And this is one reason why screwball comedy really took off, because if you're portraying a world, you know, without beds or bathrooms, you know, that's a crazy world, so let's have crazy characters. So that that's why screwball comedy did so well, because they played on that unreality, took it, you know, t- took it to its farthest extent. And if you can't have people making out, uh, then you you go to physical comedy as as another way that people can sort of express themselves with their bodies and dramatize attraction and conflict and all those things, but in a stylized, fun way that 
that also happens to get past the censor. Since, as we all know, you can show violence, just not sex. That's, you know, pretty much American cinema in a nutshell in many ways. That's true. Very true. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, and although, you know, they they really did keep gangsters off the screen <laughs> because that was one of the reasons why the sex movies in 31, 32 took over was uh, they had to agree, you know, industry-wide, no more gangster films. And they, they uh, in the late 30s after the code were things about the FBI or, you know, about police, what the, how great the police were. But... Uh, other than the Roaring Twenties in 1939, there really is no film about gangsters or for prohibition. And I think it's interesting, too. I mean, to be fair to the censors, if there's any argument they ever made that I think you'd have to say they were right, it's that the idea that Hollywood glamorized gangsters. I mean, you had... You know, small-time, cretinous hoodlums, brutal, brutally running rackets, and suddenly they're James Cagney, and they're, you know, they, they have a glamour about them that certainly is sustained to this day. I mean, as, as you see it in The Godfather, you see it in The Sopranos, all those things, you know, we've sort of mythologized a section of crime. That's very true, and it's just, it was such a major social problem then, not that it isn't now, but... But it, it just had uh, mushroomed. They were really concerned, and also that children were, were emulating them, Im- imitating them in, in pl- on playgrounds, you know, with, with violence. Uh, they were concerned about this. Um, one thing that really surprised me in, in the course of researching this particular book versus what I did on Sin and Soft Focus. See, in that book, I was in the offices of the the, the censor, the, you know, on Hollywood and Western. I was in the studio offices with all those kind of documents. I wasn't down in the theaters. I wasn't in the, in the churches on Sunday after they watched Mae West on Saturday night. Um, I really got to see how these communities viewed these films. And I was very surprised at what community standards were and how much they varied from area to area. Even within one town, they'll say, oh, uh, I have a hard time selling John Barrymore films here. But then again, it's, if it's sexy like Reunion in Vienna... And certain people in the town go to see it, the, the wealthier people, then the other people go and see it. And then they say, oh, we can't, you know, uh, we can't show films about, you know, historical figures here. Well, but if it's sexy, like Queen Christina, then we can. But then you have people saying, oh, this is a bad movie when we went to see Queen Christina. My, oh, my poor husband, and that's, that's the, the, the theater owner. There was that one letter that came in. I was really surprised. They said... We didn't realize she was a perverted. There was all this perversion in there, and oh, when are they going to stop making these kind of movies? What are we going to do about this? So it, it was just. I mean, there was, there was this. How can I say it? This great divide <laughs> between yeah. opinions, uh, you know, attitudes, uh, and often within the community. So it was going to be whoever mobilized, and you know we saw who mobilized. You wrote Sin and Soft Focus in 1999, and that that was really the the first thorough study of of what Precode was. As you say in this one, even the term Precode didn't exist until probably the late 80s. This book, by contrast, sort of focuses film by film on how producers would push it, and the reaction would come back and stuff like that. But yeah, tell me what you see the difference between the two books as being. Well, this time we find out, you know, uh, I mean, I never heard what people thought about, I mean, listen, I've seen Queen Christina (laughs) 
a hundred times, maybe, I don't know, since, since I was a child. I never knew what people thought about it in, in the, uh, around the country. I had no idea. I know what the critics said. I could quote, you know, reviews to you. I, I never knew what the, you know, just the people. And <clears throat> to have one exhibitor say, oh, you know, in other words, Garbo had been off the screen for 18 months, and she's, what, 26 years old, uh, 27. And, oh, there's life in the old gal yet. I mean, <laughs> what are they saying? I mean, it's there was this attitude at that time that silent movies were had never happened. Yeah. And the studios made sure that people thought that. Uh, they didn't want to reissue them except for, I think, Ben-Hur and, and The Family of the Opera were the only two. But um, And also, you know, you're only as good as your last picture, and it better be last week, <laughs> yeah. or you're in trouble. I mean, Norma Shearer took a big chance, and Garber took a big chance, staying off the screen for, for almost a year. Uh, and in one case, it was, you know, an involuntary decision. Thalberg was very ill, and Shearer had to be with him. But Garbo just was, you know, I don't care. I'm tired of this. People are being hounded it's in real peril because <laughs> here comes Margaret Sullivan. Here comes, you know, any number of people in the meantime, Lillian Harvey, you know, they could just, uh, Anna Stan, they could just wipe you off the map. Yeah. Uh, Dietrich, uh, in the case of Garbo. Um, the, one of the best ones of all was a censor comes to visit the New York office of the MPPDA. And his wife says, Oh, I was so glad to see what the work you're doing, the great work you're doing. But you know, I saw that Mae West movie three times. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. What a what a thing to! I bet that man would turn red. I mean, and whacked her or something after they left the office. Yeah. It just yeah, Mae West was their biggest problem. Well, and it's funny too. I think you you talk about somebody is it John Bright or somebody one of the early screenwriters. Uh, you know, he writes a gangster picture and everyone's congratulating him on, you know, the tough realism of it. And then, you know, Zanuck, whoever, invites him to his house basically for an orgy that weekend. And he's, he's, he suddenly realizes that he's a bit of a lamb among wolves at that point, even if he's written this gangster movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as we saw also from the Edmund Goulding story. You know, here's the director of Grand Hotel, Blondie the Follies. I mean, these major, major movies at the biggest studio has to leave Los Angeles because if he doesn't, there's going to be a huge scandal. He'll lose his career. He'll go to jail, and the studio will be in terrible trouble, the kind of trouble they had with Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. Uh, you know, 11 years later. Well, and there's an aspect to this story that you can't get away from, which is that there was a certain amount of anti-Semitic feeling behind suspicion of Hollywood at this time. I mean, Joseph Breen said some things early on that are pretty rough about the Jews in Hollywood, though later on he seems to have had good working and social relationships there. Joseph Breen, you know, had said some very horrible things at that time in the early 30s, but his perception of the behavior was was not was not off the beam. I mean, those things were going on because they just had these people had so much money and so much power and so much freedom all of a sudden, and they just acted as people will do. I mean, uh, but uh, as I you know took pains to point out that Joseph Breen, once he was working with Jewish people and and got to know them and they him, he you know he had to. You know, he told Jack Vizard off the record years later that you know he he would he never do anything to harm those people or to 
to you know in any way uh, dishonor them or or show prejudice or anti-Semitism. Yeah. Uh, and Jack Ford was concerned that in the book he did in 1970 was misinterpreted and that Breen had been given a bad rap by some academics in the early 90s. And, you know, he asked me, could I, you know, present the other side of the story? And I did. And, and he, you know, he died happy. He died a few months after that review that, that vindicated him. Yeah. New York Times review. But, you know, it's a major issue to... to uh, to deal with, I mean, that, to me, one of the most important things that I'm dealing with in the story is the the issue of of uh, religious tolerance, uh, prejudice, anti-Semitism, uh, all those issues that were just you know were major issues in America uh, in the early 30s, not to mention Europe. You know, because when a when when there's uh, economic trouble, there's a scapegoat. Right. Let's talk about a few more of the stars who came out in the in the pre-code period. I think this is what a lot of people really love uh, about the era. I mean, one I always think of as quintessential is Barbara Stanwyck, who who really had a line on hard-bitten gals uh, doing what they had to to get through the depression. Yeah. Now, what I uh, uh, there's no question that she became a star through the in the pre-code era. Um, and one of her films called Shopworn was one of the most heavily cut. It lost a, a, a good, almost two reels. Hmm. Um, but then again, I didn't include it as one of the top films because it it wasn't uh, a cause celeb. It wasn't, you know, from right. a major, it wasn't, it was just, it, it just, they just chopped it up. Yeah. But the baby face, was an issue, uh, and what surprises me is that it, it was widely seen. But boy, the advertising was—they <laughs> just—they knew they had a hot potato, so they were very careful what they said in the advertising. It wasn't pushed in the way that other films were being pushed. Because I checked all these different magazines, and you don't see ads for Babyface in them. Very surprising. Uh, yeah, she she was a little worried too. She when once this. You start, you know, they started having trouble with it. She was worried it might become something like the the, the scandal of uh, the story of Temple Drake, which was getting a lot of press too. The, the one thing I learned too in this, you know, for years I heard, oh, Joan Crawford rain, Joan Crawford rain. It was a big mistake, and it, you know, she she hated the movie because she felt she was bad, and she wrote, oh, I was no good. Then just you know, the last few years of her life, she saw it. Oh, I was wasn't so bad after all, but. <laughs> I said, I said, well, then it couldn't have really hurt her career. And I'm sure people didn't read. You know, she was a big star. How could they not like her that much? Or how could they dislike this film that much and dislike her in it? Well, as you see in that chapter, uh, <laughs> it's everybody disliked Rain. It, they yanked it early from theaters. I mean, the, the exhibitors hated it. I've never seen such, such angry letters from exhibitors as they wrote about that film. Huh. And it it did hurt her career, uh, and it didn't help the next film she did, which is called Today We Live, uh, was supposed to be uh, all about men in World War One, aviators and everything, and they added her character to give her something to do, and it was a big mistake because it was a bomb. It was a, just a really didn't it was a big disaster. So she had two bad films in a row, but Rain was the one that really it did hurt her career, and and. Uh, this was the one instance where you know, and so the so Stanwyck was and Hopkins were right to be concerned. Was this going to really mess me up or not? 
Yeah. Because uh, it could have. I mean, because Crawford was the biggest star at that moment when she did Rain. And she, you know, she had the farthest to fall. Which is weird, because I don't, I don't see why that one in particular. I mean, sometimes you see something and you just know why it's a stiff. Um, it's a little too arty, but I just feel like it's one of those things where public was ready for a scapegoat of some sort, and that movie just seemed to hit him in all the wrong ways, and they went after it. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, that they realized, you know, this man is really a, a minister. He's, they, they may call him Mister, but he's a minister. So that rubbed the wrong way, too. Right. And that's one of those things where you just, you know, some of this that's so fascinating about it is it's just sensibilities that it's hard to imagine now. I mean, we all know there's there's rotten preachers out there. That's kind of just part of our life, the Jimmy Swaggarts of the world. It happens once in a while. Um, but certain things then, I mean, the one that always amazed me was the blessed event uh, the Walter Winchell character played by Lee Tracy kind of gets his fame just by revealing that people are expecting a baby, that society people are, you know, society women are pregnant. That in itself is a scandal, not how they got pregnant. Just the fact that the species is reproducing is enough to be titillating and shocking. You see how, how, how community standards have changed in 87 years. I mean, and also, remember in the book I put twice. I thought it was on to the same topic. I just couldn't believe it. People were writing in saying, "Must the character say I'm going to have a baby?" Yeah. That's, and whoa. <laughs> uh, and indeed, even pre-code, did that. If you've seen enough of them, you realize they're whispered in someone's ear, or but don't you know? Oh, darling, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just don't say it um, because people didn't say it in public. I mean, the, what I have been able to ascertain, even the term sex indicating, you know, denoting the, the sex intercourse wasn't spoken in public, let alone on, on the screen. I mean, I, I, I made friends with a woman who had been on Broadway in the 20s and then came to Hollywood for the King of Jazz and stayed for a few uh, George O'Brien Westerns at Fox Film, Nell O'Day. And she, she broke it down for me. This is in 1981, and you know how wild the 70s and 80s were. She, I mean, she said, you just didn't talk about certain things. Women wore gloves. Uh, men always walked on the outside of the, street, the, the sidewalk. The women walked uh, on the inside. Um, there were no uh, damn and hell spoken in public. He said it was just a different world. Men wore hats. You know, it, it's, he said there was a kind of gentility that after World War II, it, things changed because men had been exposed to horror. And there's no way other way to describe it, just the horror. And, uh, you know, World War I had been a, a terrible, terrible thing, but the, it was, World War II was much worse. And she said just everything changed. Uh, and the 50s were, were a reaction to that trying to pretend everything was going to be fine. And, you know, by the 60s, you know, people were saying it's not going to be fine and everything changed. But she said, you can't put the values of 1981 onto 1931. She said, it just won't work. And she was a writer herself, a copy editor, too, in later life. And so I had, so it's hard to convey that. So that's why I try to put those things at the beginning of the book to say, look, you know, this People were, it was a very different world then, not just, you know, sections of the country, you know, even metropolitan scenes where people were, were 
if not Victorian, at least Edwardian. Yeah. So you you can't judge. Uh, you know, look at the oh, what's that? What's the big deal about that? And I've had that in classes. You know, people say, what's the big deal about that scene? Well. That was the first time anyone had dared to do it. Yeah, I mean, another one like that for me is just the the mention that someone says at one point, a few years ago you could pack a theater if someone said hell or goddamn. It's like, really? Just because someone said it? That that was enough to sell tickets? That... He's referring to um, the play What Price Glory. Right, yeah. First one, um, uh, also Rain. Uh, Rain, um, she ends the, the, the play... Um, I feel I feel sorry for everybody in the beep beep world. Um, and Rain was what twenty three. So those were they shook the, the theaters to the their foundations by having uh, profanity. There was no obscenity, mind you, just but the profanity, profanity was enough to do it. Right, right. And he was right. Yeah, that that up until that those years, they, they, there was just this kind of gentleman's agreement that you couldn't do the. What was you know there were community standards, as I say, not only in uh, the the Mid, mid middle of the country, the Midwest, but also in the big cities, because those plays would, you know, those plays would tour everywhere. Well, let's talk about. I mean, there's several candidates for the film that brought the production code on, uh, but let's talk about one that I th- I think stands a good uh, chance of it. And it's also interesting because I mean, talking about Victorian standards, it's from someone who, through his whole career, was was very canny about you know having one foot in the Victorian era and one foot in getting away with as much as he could get away with. And that's Cecil B. DeMille and the sign of the cross, which, you know, speaking of Roman orgies, I mean, pretty much has everything that you could, you could get into a costume picture at that time. Yeah. And also bear in mind, people of of my generation, you know, the boomers uh, saw this film on TV from about 58 to 60 on and what we were seeing the censored version, and you know it's a it's a very moving film, but it's got a lot of guts to it too. So I saw it in '81, the nitrate print when they had a hundredth birthday celebration for Cecil B. DeMille at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So for the first time, I saw that complete film, and oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all the way through, there's cuts. I mean, I just you think, oh, they just cut that dance out. No, no, the whole the whole movie. There's you know the the milk bath has more more breast exposed. Uh, the and of course the arena games, oh, they must have cut five minutes out of that. It's it's five minutes longer uh, in the original version. Um, but yeah, the, the point being that he, if anybody was in danger of losing a career and losing not a fortune per ticket because he had diversified into banking and aviation, but DeMille was in danger of losing his film career. Uh, and he, I mean, look at, he had to raise money himself to, for half of the film. And he was put on a leash and you've got to make it for this amount of money. And, and so he had the banker say, look, tell me when this, when I'm running out of money. And they were it's filming in the arena, the Roman gladiator arena. And oh, you're out of money. Okay. Cut. That's it. <laughs> I'm sure they shot inserts, but you know. Right. Um, the point is, he he had this is a do or die proposition, and he thought, well, you know, I can get away with now, um, and they'll cut a lot of it out. But I'll, you know, just put so much like Mae West would put things in her scripts. She knew they'd cut because what they left in was what she really wanted left in, and that was a, everybody played that game. But in this case, Demille took it. <laughs> 
there had never been, and I'm, you know, I've I've seen a lot of silent films and a lot of early talkies. Take my word for it. This sign of the cross didn't just do more; it did more of what no one had ever seen. I mean, there had never been a beheading in a movie before. I mean, this it's just it's just every aspect of it went farther, deeper, wider, broader. <laughs> uh, it, it it was really. And an, an exercise in sensationalism, and what the James Bond films were accused of being in the early '60s. What one the priest said, it goes beyond the bounds of legitimate storytelling, and that's debatable. And indeed, if you have the censors, Jason Joyce said, "Well, we can justify the, the inclusion of this dance in the film because it it shows just how depraved the Romans were." Plus, who's going to know understand what this means, you know? But uh, <laughs> if anybody would understand, the priests understood, and bishops and cardinals, so yeah. and they were the ones who mobilized. But also, the, the the issue was, besides this being the most graphic, sexually, and violent ever made, it took Catholic mythology. It it really did take the Catholic mythology and. You know, give it this. Well, you know, the pagans were interesting too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Christians shouldn't get all the attention. That's basically what this movie's about. Um, you know, they're they're fun too. Let's look at their lives and, and uh, <clears throat> they're doing mean things, but look how interesting they are. <laughs> look how beautiful they are. Look how beautiful their homes are. Look at how they're dressed. Oh my, look at those those curls on those hairdos. I mean, it was just <laughs> it stacked the deck because look at Elsa Lanchester said. Uh, this is in the DeMille book. She said, I would visit Charles at the commissary when he's making sign of the cross, Charles Lautner, her husband. And she said, and you see these people coming in, all these people with beards, and they're all wearing these rough-hewn clothes, and they're covered up. And then you see people coming in, and they're half-naked with all these beautiful jewelry and wigs and, and costumes and headdresses and everything. She says, well, I guess they wanted to be sure that the lions didn't eat the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> You could see that DeMille was stacking the deck. So, I mean, every Christian was, you know, kind of fuzzy and rumpled and unattractive, and every every Roman was, you know, gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> There's a book by a writer named Richard Barrios <clears throat> called Screened Out. He, he said he went to a screening of the sign of the cross in the 90s in New York City. And um, what he reports, the, the reactions to that, those the sexy scenes he reports are much more, uh, you know, what's the word, shocked, than what I saw in 81 at the L.A. County Museum. Uh, I remember one person, uh, it was a, some, a really clever crane shot that DeMille does down the side of the Colosseum and then into the uh, the dungeon where the Christians are being held. I remember somebody saying, oh, he's a genius. <laughs> but I don't recall anybody going, oh, no. At the at the dance at the at the the orgy and apparently in New York people in the '90s said were like gasping because they just they weren't expecting it they were they're more or less rich people going there because they were um, what do you call it uh, sponsors uh, board members and stuff to see this oh, right. quaint movie <laughs> yeah they were shocked <laughs> they were not expecting this at all you know it was it was like this is like 1980s style uh, filmmaking in 1932. Of course, there were priests taking altar boys to see it, but <laughs> most of the priests were preaching against it from the pulpit. And it, you know, there were 
that was before the party line was established. And like, this is the one. If they can do this, you know, the next thing they're going to be doing is you know terrible things about nuns and priests, and we got to stop this. So the code comes in, and a number of films, of course, are edited and oftentimes only survive in the postcode re-edited versions. Um, what do you think is is the legacy of of the pre-code era? I'd say the legacy was that they were more adventurous in terms of topics and themes, and that even though many of those films were cut, certain scenes were cut in the main, those films survived. Because you can see uh, every year at Grand Hotel, Cavalcade, it happened one night, uh, maybe they'll have little bits snipped out of them, if anything, in those particular cases. Uh, but, you know, they were about, they, they were there were themes they dealt with that you wouldn't see until the late 40s, if you're lucky, or the 50s. Uh, so there were important films made in the pre-code period. There were the important stars made in the pre-code period. Um, and in truth, the films that were held back from reissue, uh, the, the class one, I guess it was called, She Done Him Wrong, Red-Headed Woman, uh, Queen Christina, did come to TV, uncensored but it's the ones like the mask of fu manchu viva via manhattan melodrama okay manhattan melodrama is the one that has not been restored viva via has been restored mask of fu manchu has been restored Babyface has been restored love me tonight has not been restored and the one the really bad case in my opinion is Matahari, the Garbo film, because the cuts there exist in a print in Brussels. The, the uncensored version exists in a print in Brussels. But because Turner had brought out the Matahari in a beautiful DVD for the Garbo centenary, they said, we're not going to spend money to get this print from Brussels and put those scenes back in. So, you know, I'm hoping we're going to at some point get a letter writing campaign or something and they'll, they'll restore Matahari because that the artistic value of the scenes that were cut is is sufficient to justify their being restored. Yeah. Uh, they were beautifully done scenes, uh, and it's a gorgeous movie. However, uh, inane some aspects of it may be. It's it's some, in terms of art direction, costume, and photography, that is one of the great films of the, of the 30s, a high watermark in black and white photography. But I still haven't figured out how exactly the Scarlet Empress and Search for Beauty escaped Breen. Because they really did escape Breen. Yeah. The question is, and I just can't figure, I mean, all I can figure out is that because he was out of the office, I mean, he had a meeting about Scarlet Empress. That's how worried he was, because it was just the most put sign of the cross in the shade. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really. And yet it got through. But I think it was because just circumstances. Sternberg insisted on opening it early in London. When it was time to, to, to have the official seal put on it, I guess they figured it had already been okayed and they could do it. Yeah. Hmm. But that, that was, let's, put, let's, let's term that a miracle. <laughs> yeah. And then Search for Beauty, I just can't believe that film got through because it, it makes fun of, of Breen. It makes fun of the censors. Besides getting all that you know, male nudity, my goodness. So it's, we're lucky that he did hold back films like She Done Him Wrong, Red-Headed Woman, because that meant they weren't cut. And we're really lucky that those two important films. I mean, Scarlet Empress is a masterpiece, one of the greatest films ever made in terms of photography and editing. 
Uh, it's just a brilliant, brilliant work of art. And we're just lucky that it wasn't, because that could have been just bodlerized, could have been destroyed. I mean, it would have, it would have been lost. It would have lost 30 minutes. Right, <laughs> at least, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, it's all about a woman <laughs> learning to use sex to conquer a country. Yeah. In terms of what you asked, the legacy, um, I do believe that, that the important films that were made that weren't really badly cut did survive um, all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, the Divorcee, Grand Hotel, as I mentioned earlier, um, Farewell to Arms, which has been restored, thank heaven. That There's a gorgeous Blu-ray on that. Yes, and I have that. Re- that's a p- wonderful film, as I'm sure, I hope you'll agree. Um, so, yeah, there, there are many, many important films from that era that dealt in issues that would not be dealt again, dealt with again until the 50s and 60s. And that's and also the the great number of stars who could only have been cast uh, the people in the silent films couldn't have been cast in those roles in those controversial films. I mean, Margaret Sullivan's one example. She you know um, I mean because of her various personality problems she didn't become as big a star as she could have, but she definitely was one of the great actresses of, of the era or any era. And she you know he owed her career to two. Very <laughs> controversial pre-code movies, Only Yesterday and Little Man, What Now? Well, we've gotten to 1934, and I think we're about at about the length of a uh, Warren William movie. So uh, thank you for talking to me about uh, the pre-code era. I think I was able to say what I learned by writing that's my second book on pre-code. <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. And it was a lot. I, I'm, I'm just so grateful to these companies for making it possible because I feel this is something I want to share you know, add to the existing knowledge on, on this subject. Well, out here, you're within a few feet of the two things you want most. But you're always a few feet away. Freedom and men. You can't do it because I love you. And you love me. If you put your hands on me again, I'll... I'll kill you. Thanks to my guest, Mark A. Vieira. A link for Forbidden Hollywood will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave a rating or a review at iTunes to help other people find out about us too. Thanks.